All right, so joining us now, we have uh, Andy Moog. Um, Andy's one of the most successful goalies in the 80s and 90s. Uh, he won a Stanley Cup three times with the Edmonton Oilers um, and played 18 seasons in the NHL uh, and included, in, including he played in the Olympics. So incredible resume, and that's just as a player. Then he was a coach in the NHL as well, so... Uh, Andy, when you when you look back at your career and you kind of hear those things, like how do you reflect back? And, and <laughs> is it kind of crazy to hear that you played 18 seasons in the NHL with three Stanley Cups? Well, there's some physical requirements on a day to day basis in terms of aches and pains that remind me <laughs> what I went through. Yeah. But uh, notwithstanding that, um, I, I, I think that the thing that sticks to me most right now about those 18 years is what I was critical of myself for not being in the moment enough as a player. And now that I reflect back, I was doing a pretty good job of staying in the moment one season one to season 10 to season 18. It, it seemed to be that if I could stay in the present, I had a better chance of, of, of just succeeding and focusing and going forward. So I think I was hard on myself early on in my career. But I think overall, now that I look back, I did a pretty good job of staying present. So what, when you say that you were hard on yourself, I think a lot of young kids and young players are tough on themselves. And it's, it's uh, one of the differentiators between being a good hockey player and allowing yourself to become great. How did you learn that? I mean, I've been around you a ton. You're a very you know, relaxed yet confident person. Um, where did you learn those traits and, and how did that kind of, you said you were tough on yourself early, but looking back, you did a good job. Like how did you, how did you learn those skills? Well, I, I think there was probably a bunch of contributing factors. First off, as I matured and that, that's probably the key. As I matured, I sort of, I, I began to understand what my role was, what my responsibilities were. And uh, the, the sooner I started to understand what my role and responsibilities were, uh, that's when I became a little less demanding or a little less hard on myself. So that was one factor. A second factor would have been definitely my environment. So teammates, coaches, trainers, uh, family, they were a constant source of support and encouragement. Uh, that, that doesn't say that I wasn't getting pushed and demanding from coaches and players holding me to a high level of accountability. But I think in those, in those situations, it was all demanding but in the end I was able to channel it into a positive reinforcement and it it gave me a break from time to time uh it let me have a slip up and a mistake because you're never perfect and uh, I think that was my attempts early on in my career was to be perfect and as I matured and was able to grow as a player and a person I think I realized that perfection was it was uh, admirable, but it wasn't attainable. Just had to show up and, and perform and work every day and accept, accept some of the outcomes that come, good or bad. Okay, so you bring up something interesting because you were part of the uh, 1985 team, which has been named many times as the NHL's greatest team of all time. And some of those players on that team, uh, I mean, it's just mind-boggling to look at. You have... Um, six eventual Hall of Famers include Gretzky, Curry, Coffey, Mark Messier, Glenn Anderson, and your goalie partner, Grant Fuhrer. Um, Gretzky 
has been quoted saying that we had a love for the game and uh, we loved playing and we loved practicing. Uh, I think from Mark Messier to Glenn Anderson to Coffey to Kevin Lowe to Curry, we showed up for practice and we practiced hard. Tell me about that organization or that team and just the willingness to, to work as hard as they did. Yeah, that's, that's been chronicled uh, so often, but I think from a, from an internal perspective, from a teammate perspective, that, that, that couldn't be more evident that they couldn't wait to get to the rink. They couldn't wait to get on the bus. They couldn't wait to get on the plane to go play the next game. It was just, it was our life and it probably reflected all that we were in our young twenties in the early eighties. And it was, it was, they couldn't think of a funner thing to do. And it was sincere fun. It wasn't just, Oh, this is great. This is great. It wasn't lip service. It was sincere joy for what we were doing at the time. And, and you, and you really didn't have a focus on, on uh, uh, the competition or the challenges of winning games and earning points and rising in the standings. It was whether it was practice or whether it was game, it was just show up, compete, sweat, shower and leave. And, and uh, I think that's where I, I, I learned some skills about leaving the game at the rink because of those guys. Because when we walked out the rink, there was some fun to be had. Not always the right kind of fun, but we had some fun. <laughs> and uh, I think that was, a, that was at the time being in my early 20s, there was definitely a need for some balance. I couldn't be 24-7 a goalie. I needed some balance. And that environment allowed us to, to be people, be young adults and kids away from the rink. Yeah. How was it inside the locker room? Who are your, who are your leaders uh, and what type of leaders were they? Obviously, you, you have the guy that wears a C, Wayne Gretzky. Uh, you also have, you know, Mark Messier. Uh, were those two the clear leaders in the dressing room as well? Or how did that dynamic work? Yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree with that for sure. They were both very different in their, in their model and their role. Wayne was just ultra positive, supportive. Hey, let's go to lunch. Let's forget about it. Let's have some fun. He would keep us engaged and on board just by being committed there to all his teammates. And then Mark was a bit more of in your face demanding. He expected things out of you and he challenged you, whether it was in the room or in practice, he wanted you to perform and, uh, in both instances, I think the third leader, the valuable leader for me, anyways, was Kevin Lowe. He was he was the he was the good cop to Mark's bad cop, and he was the bad cop to Wayne's good cop. He sort of kept you straight. And in, in Wayne's instances, he'd come and he says, "You know, this guy, our leader, he's putting his his neck out for you. You better show up and play for him." And then when he would deal with Mark's comments, he says, you know, he says that because he loves you. That's sort of commentary after, after you got a little roughed up by mess. So uh, Kevin was valuable in his, uh, his role. And we had, we had many others. And I, th I think the one leader that probably wouldn't ever be perceived as a leader from the outside was Dave Semenko. Mm -hmm. uh, Dave, Dave had a very specific role. And he did it with passion and he, and he, and he loved his team and he loved his teammates, but he had, he had the ability to bring the intensity to the right perspective so he could go out and play. And he had an unbelievably clever wit about him and his sense of humor and timing was excellent. And he was able to lead trying to take the, take the heat off a little bit. And he was very good at that. Hmm. So Obviously, with the success of the Oilers comes, you know, a lot of pressures, pressures to continue to win, pressure on individual players. 
how are some of the ways or what are some of the things that you did to or lessons that you learned to handle pressure? Um, on, on a personal note, like I said, I was evolving as a player in the 20s, young 20 year old, just understanding. But I, I think for me, I had a I had a couple of of uh, tools that I used with respect to taking the intensity or the pressure off the game. The first one was a, you know, a physical tool. I had a physical motion uh, in, in the golfing world, they call it a waggle. And that physical motion allowed me to, to alleviate some of the anxiety and the stresses of the moment and perform. And then the second thing was a mental tool that I used. And I had a, I had a breathing technique that I really relied on. And I had a, a little mantra that rolled in my head and, it was it was mine it was personal and it made sense to me probably nobody else but it allowed me to to breathe and repeat that mantra and start letting the the anxiety and the pressures and the stresses of of situations flush away and uh, you know those were those were invaluable to me over my career there was lots of different situations and lots of different teams and challenges but I think that I built those those stress relievers internally and it allowed me to just be myself and I I think in in the big picture, the players that perform the best under the the most intense pressure are typically the guys that just play up to their abilities. They have they they don't rise above and beyond very often, but they do consistently play up to their abilities. And I think that that was the case with me. I was able to find a way to play up to my abilities regardless of the stress levels. Do you think that um, when you talk about kind of this? waggle uh that's really intriguing you talked about you know that's what they call it in golf can you expand upon that a, a little bit more like how is it kind of like swagger yeah i i think it it does a couple of things it's it's a it's a sign because it's very difficult to communicate with a goaltender during the course of a game you've got your all your teammates sitting on the bench your coaching staff back there behind the bench, the opposition right beside, you can't really communicate anything to those guys. So physically you have to look like you've got it. And whether it's, whether it's a little goalie skate into the corner, if that's what you do, whether it's some sort of bouncing or, or some sort of arm waving or relaxing technique, that's the way you communicate your body language. When you do those things communicates to your team. I got this. Don't worry about it. I'm there for you. Let's go. And they, they look at you and they say, yeah, he's okay. And off they go to do their jobs and, and try and win the game. But uh, I think that for me, that little physical motion, me was I had a little, I had a little squatting and, and sort of windmilling my arms from time to time. And it, it, it might have been preserved as a, as a stretch or a little bit of a warm-up technique, but I tended to do it. And it was big muscles and big movements and it had to breathe to do it. And that was my way of releasing some of that pent up or built up stress or anxiety with a, with a demanding situation. I think that, uh, I mean, both you and I have seen this with not only being athletes or goalies yourself, but just any player that we've seen in the NHL, there's certain guys that just carry around an aura, right? And you, you obviously saw a lot of this with, with the Edmonton Oilers but guys that come into the rink and it's almost like you can sense and feel their confidence and confidence is contagious. Confidence is something that I believe can't be faked. It has to be earned. 
but it's, uh, it's incredible when you do have that confidence, when you do have that aura, how infectious it is on the rest of your team. Yeah. And I, I agree. And, and, and regardless of your role on the team, whether you're a big physical presence, when you're a small skilled forward or a worker or a scorer, everybody can have a presence. You don't have to do one thing to create a presence. You can be yourself and contribute in that way. And, you know, there's a lot of communication involved in the game, but like I said, not, not all of it's verbal there. You can communicate with your body language. And I think those guys that walk in that manner and present themselves in that manner, they're communicating a real positive message and yeah, you absorb it. You, you feed off their confidence, makes you feel a little stronger and a little more powerful. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to a little bit of this kind of leadership that you had within the dressing room um, with the Oilers. Is there any story that you can look back at uh, that is um, that you're allowed to share where you say, wow, wow, this, this guy really stepped up. This was a point in our season that somebody needed to step up or something had happened that, that somebody really kind of rose to the occasion and it doesn't have to be one of the biggest names. Yeah. Uh, I, I think, I think the one that, the one that, gave me the best perspective of who we were and what we were trying to do was, was a situation uh, when we were in a dire strait in a playoff series, it was not going well. We weren't playing up to our abilities and we were down. I mean, it didn't look good at all. And uh, Kevin Lowe made a comment. And like I said, he was a very good middleman to everything. And he made a comment to the effect that we got him right where we want him, boys, let's go. And it, it, it was a, it doesn't matter what's happened. It only matters what we're doing now. And that provided a great deal of focus on the moment. And uh, we, in that series, we played our best game of the, of the series, the next game. I'm going to say we didn't win the series, but by, by no means was that we were out of it. And the, the opposition knew we played our best game of the series and we were coming hard, but it was destiny to be knocked out, but a comment like that doesn't really seem like it has a big impact, but it let everybody just forget the past and think about the moment. And I tell you the, the best players I've played with and played against and watched over the years are the ones that show up to the rink. And that's the day that matters, whether it's practice on a Tuesday morning or whether it's a big game on a Saturday night, when they show up, that's the moment that matters the most. Which is which is interesting, and I know I struggled this uh, with this with a, as a player um, is having a short term memory, regardless of you know if you've had a great game uh, or if you've had a terrible game. Just being able to forget about it and, and live in that moment, and just each day show up and play. And that's that's a tough thing to do. Yeah, it's. Uh... It's very challenging. I, I probably got a good lesson in, in my career, albeit I was on the coaching side uh, when, I, when I met Marty Brodeur and, and worked with him for a couple of weeks during the, uh, the uh, Turin, Torino Olympics. Mm. Um, what was that? What was that? 08, I think. Not, not exactly sure about the year. But anyways, uh, this, he, was a, he was a career rink rat. He could not be happier if he if he wasn't at the rink, and uh, he just lived for the practice. Like I said, didn't matter what practice it was, morning skate didn't matter. He he was there, 
that was his moment and he and he was focused and intent and uh, it was a it was a really good lesson to realize that it, it happens generational everybody has those guys that love to be at the rink and love to play and and uh yeah he had uh, he had the ability to do that as well as anybody i've seen because a lot of that being able to kind of shut out the outside world um may have been easier when you know we played and when you were playing uh now with social media and you know the ability for information to travel so fast is that with success comes also later on criticism where mm-hmm. people are going to have their opinions and i think that's something that's you know really tough for a lot of players to read i mean i've spoken to a lot of players that you know, you love to read good press about yourself, but then you also know when it's not good and it's sometimes tough to avoid and you let it get to you. Is there anything that you learned along the way that helped you uh, have the ability to, um, you know, accept criticism? Yeah, I think, I think as I matured, I became less interested in, in the, in the, uh, perspective or the the uh, sort of the observational side of of the media. If if I was going to look at it's a newspaper, I would probably peel over to the stats pages and the game summaries and just read the facts without anybody's perspective on how the game went, or who was good or who was bad. And I, that 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 just evolved for me. Probably a few hurt feelings, probably a little grumpy because of a story that didn't really matter to anybody. And uh, I, I appreciate today's athletes and in particular, they have, they have an unbelievable challenge. And I, I read a quote about, it's called FOMO, fear of missing out. And uh, it must be more prevalent in today's world than any other world in terms of all the, all the resources you have in social media. But I think that's the one thing I overcame. I wasn't concerned about not reading a story. I wasn't concerned about not watching a sports center at night to see if I looked good in the highlights. Uh, it was a big part of me when I was young, but I think I came to appreciate that that fear of missing out uh, was a, it was a handicap and I had to get past that. And I was yeah. eventually over time able to get past it. But these young, these young athletes today have a huge challenge there is it, it just takes your energy to a, to a bad place, whether it's good or bad yeah. commentary, you, you don't need to go there. You have all the support and all the focus you, you need within your own circles. You don't need that external input. Yeah. It's almost like uh, an artificial uh, boost of confidence or, you know, uh, or a decrease in confidence. Yeah. You know, I look at, I look at a player like Tim Thomas and he and I have had a lot of ex- uh conversations about this and whenever he was in a town whether whether it was you know Boston when they were in the Stanley Cup or whether it was when he was playing in Europe he was so focused on the task at hand and he didn't pay any attention to outside commentary that it was almost like he was oblivious to things like that which helps you tremendously in the long term I think there's plenty of time to look back and reflect and smile and pat yourself on the back and things like that. But when you're in the moment, when you're in the battle, just focus on being in the battle. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think those are less lessons that, that are incredibly important for young players to learn. Yeah. I, I always perceived I had a, I had a finite amount of energy. 
Mm. You know, it might have been it might have been ill advised over a career like I had, but there was only so much I had and I didn't want to waste any of it on anything but preparation and play. Yeah, that, that, that's the way I perceived it as I moved through my career. It's interesting. I would I would do that as well later as a coach and say, you know, to players that say if you have 100 percent of energy, it's up to you where you want to spend it. But there's no extra, right? So if you want to spend it 100% on the ice, if you want to spend it, you know, uh, 80% on the ice and 20% worrying about things outside of your control, but it's it's a good way to think about it because I think it lets you get dialed in on on where really yeah. you want to deposit that energy. I think so too. You know, um, looking back now, if you had young Andy Moog sitting across the table from you um let's say young Andy at 18 and old KG veteran Andy Moga the present what would you tell that young player uh I think I'd I'd start with what with the the point we talked about earlier about giving myself a break being less hard there was some rough years there was early years in my career where I was a miserable SOB and and I had to come home to a young family uh, two, two or three young girls through those early years. And I was not very pleasant to be around. And I, I have a lot of regrets about what I brought home to, to my family after the games. Uh, fortunately, I got through that later in my career. But I would tell that young guy to leave it at the rink better. You're not going to be perfect, but leave it at the rink more often. Find the balance in your life. And it allows you to focus your energy when you're, when you're preparing and playing those games. Hmm. Very interesting. Then now uh, one more question here, Mogert. If when you look at your experience now as a coach and you get to kind of have this like top up view of what's going on and, and really understanding the mindset of a lot of young players, whether they're goaltenders or, you know, forwards or defensemen, you know, what is it in your opinion that separates players nowadays? Like who, what, who becomes great? <laughs> Yeah, the 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 bar or the acceptable level of of skill and talent today is so high in in all positions in our game. Um, it, it's a it's a real challenge for evaluators. And uh, if if I was to if I was to determine one thing that was the advantage to young guys, um, I, I'd probably have to go with the mental toughness side. I, I think that everybody evolves physically, the, the coaching available to train and to skill develop and to play the game is incredible. Um, I, I would say the mental skills or the mental side of the game to be able to play at a high level for a long time would be, would be an area that I challenge young players to improve at. I think they get so much of the other stuff. Uh, there are times when, it'd be considered overload, but they get it. And uh, I would say that finding ways for young guys to develop their mental side, whether it's within the organization, whether they have to go outside the organization and find some help and find some, some, some teaching or mentoring on the mental side is a really valuable asset to develop right now. I think when you look at it too, um, you know, we sit in the coach's office all the time and you know, you might have some players that aren't always the greatest in practice, but you call them gamers. Like they're just gamers. They show up and, and they elevate their play and they make everybody around them better. 
and they just they're clutch right yeah. we all know those players and it's it's i've often found it's the ability for an athlete to get out of his or her own way um to to let the skill come out when it needs to come out mm-hmm. yeah for sure definitely uh, the, the the other side of that from the from the coaching perspective is i think i think our coaching world or our coaching environment is guilty of of a over evaluation mentality everything the player does says is is evaluated for some degree and it's like you said there's times when you're just not there and you can't really be held accountable for everything 24 hours a day seven days a week but you have to you have to pick your spots to evaluate to find out who they are and i think if you were better at that you'd probably find those guys that are game players that show up and were able to compete and play to a very good level in the game. So it's interesting because if we wrap up this whole conversation, it kind of goes back to Gretzky's comment where he says, we just had a love for the game. We loved playing. We loved practicing. And they just loved being together as a group and winning hockey games. Yeah. So no question. Pretty awesome. Well, Moger, I can't thank you enough for, uh, for sharing some of your, knowledge um you know you're one of uh you're one of my favorites to hang around because you have so much experience you're such a humble guy um but uh you've uh, been able to accomplish things that most people will only dream about so thank you so much for your time my pleasure anytime all right buddy thanks okay see you Vals. goodbye